How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. <laughs> and I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 170. <laughs> you said a funny thing right before you yeah, opened was, the podcast. I was talking about breaking my social media silence mm. this week. Obviously, was, was there a silence? I think so. I had a hiatus. How I, long was the gap between... I, your... didn't, I didn't put anything up on my story or my post. Like, I haven't put a post up in like eight months. Eight months? Maybe nine months. Let's verify July this. So you posted what, last, today? Yeah, and then July last year. My wi fi was being crap seven hours ago and then 29th of July 2021. Yeah, wow. End of July. That is nearly and 12 months. I always, and I didn't put anything up on my story yeah. for about the same time until this week. Oh, that is, oh. Due to something tied to this show. That is true. Look at you go. So, your little segues and your little I know. ties. We'll yeah. talk about that a little later on. That was my fun fact for the show. Oh, of but course. But Jake, do you have a fun fact for the film that we're going to be talking about in yes the i, I do actually of course i mean we're talking about back to the future yes. finally zeke yes finally 170 finally. weeks finally talking about back to the future my trivia fact this is one i've known for a long time and i always found this quite funny um but it's actually to do with the uh product placement team that bob gale uh, was put in touch with by universal so obviously there was a, a team <laughs> that was going to organize the product placements and that and, you know, them getting a bit of money to do, you know, and the, I imagine there was a Coke one in the second film or um, or a, a Coke one in a Stranger Things season three. Mm. I'm sure <laughs> there's a lot of examples like that. That um, trailer just dropped. Oh, week, the new season. season. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure it'd be very good. Not brilliant, but very good. We'll see. Better than season three, which I think was good. A little wacky. But good. No, but to go back to the product placement, of course, Bob Gale talked about how he was offered $75,000 by changing the DeLorean to a Ford Mustang. Which I gotta admit, that's, you know, nowadays, Zeke, we're in mid 20s. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. USD yeah. in the 80s. Just for inflation. Exactly. Yeah. It'd be crazy. However, Mr. Bob Gale replied, and I will say this, I will say it in full purely for historical accuracy. His quote was, Doc Brown doesn't drive a fucking Mustang. So I was like, I like that. <laughs> and it's true. I don't see Doc Brown buying a Mustang. He's Look, got enough family fortune to save on the on the time machine. But Zeke, yeah. what's your fun fact? Back yeah, back to so the future. I, I found this one quite interesting. Speaking of time, because this film's associated with time. Wow. I know. <laughs> it's not like it's literally in the title. The, the discussion of time. Um, so from the day the film wrapped, uh, it was released a mere nine and a half weeks. Weeks? Not months. Nine and a half weeks. So wow. in two... Just over two months, post-production went for. The, now that I think about it, I never thought about this, but there aren't a lot of VFX shots in Back to the Future. No. Yeah, there's very, very few. Obviously, the DeLorean sort of disappearing. And maybe they, they were, they the were editing on editing while shooting. Oh, like there was def- almost like you would a, imagine like a, they would be, yeah. Like a concurrent uh, parallel. But that is, for me, like, I mean, you're not going to get many short films in the modern day that are going to no, take we probably, nine. We probably spent nine weeks editing <laughs> Faces in the Crowd. That was eight minutes. I and spent six months nine. editing Disconnected. <laughs> but like you said, you've, you've really pointed out how grounded this film is in terms of using physical effects and visual effects and... Basically, how cleanly the clean the plot is, 
how simplistic mm. yet, but also in you know fun the plot is, but yeah. also very easy, I imagine, to put together on an on an editing room floor. Well, in terms of yeah, the, when I think about the way they sell the time travel, it's through production design. Yeah, it's through sending you back to the fifties. Yeah, and it, there's a couple of shots. Obviously, the flames, the lightning, when he puts his hand up, in it's, it's disappearing. Which I mean, that probably was a very simple trick, anyway. Yeah. In terms of crossing two frames well, over each other, but yeah, literally. there's not a lot of VFX shots. I don't think. Well, that's a fun fact. Yeah. Jake, absolutely. I know this is the, the part of the show where you ask me if that is on. The, the poster behind me, but we can skip the candid question because it's 100% behind me. It is. The more accurate question would be how many of the Back to the Future films are behind oh. me? And I'm thinking at least the first two are going to be behind me on the poster. Wow. Well, I'm going to have to check. I would... I think there was a strong case for the entire trilogy. Obviously, the first one is the most important one to put mm. in there. But I think the second one, and you would probably agree with me, I think the second one is your favourite of yeah. the trilogy. The second one does a lot of very revolutionary, cool things. Well, you can get back to the answer to that question in the second half of the show. Yeah. We'll take a little break. Yeah, I like, I like the sound of that. Stay tuned, folks, for our Back to the Future discussion. But Zeke, yes. what else have you been watching in the past busy week? week. You've had you've had a busy week? Busy week. Oh, very um, good. I ended up clocking in. I'd like to now. hear it. Now gonna get it up now. Uh, I'm gonna spoil this. I'm gonna open up your letterbox <laughs> and spoil it for myself. It's a myself. very busy week. So let's see: one, two, three, seven. Seven. So back that's on the enough. 365 challenge over here. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Which was actually really nice. Obviously, life's gotten a lot easier um, in the last couple of weeks with much yeah. less work, and we've had a nice Easter break. I've got study that break is this true. week. And Happy Easter, everyone! Jeez, Happy we, didn't, Easter. we didn't even open yes, with that. We didn't even. Um, we're recording and releasing on, on Easter, Easter Monday, Monday exactly. yeah. yeah so I actually caught I'm gonna go through these in in, in categories or, or at least I'll just start with the more um, forgettable film which was uh, a 2022 release called the weekend away this was a <laughs> film by I've seen uh, parts of this film yeah it's rough it oh god yeah uh, I walked in on like the big climax reveal at the end of the film and, yeah and I was like why is this lit so brightly? For such like a, a dramatic part of the story, okay. We're just in this brightly lit apartment, it, <laughs> it was nice that it took place in a more obscure location like Croatia. But mm. um, the film wasn't for me. It was twisty and turny, but not really super engaging. Didn't leave a lot for um, provoking thought. Sure. Um, so I'm not going to touch too much on that. Um, that's from uh, I think an Australian filmmaker, Kim oh. Ferrant. Who did Strangerland? Um, oh, in that in that case, this was the greatest film I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, speaking of Australian filmmakers, <laughs> um, I've got a couple of. I've actually done quite a lot of Australian cinema, if you'd call it, well cinema. Mm. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, <laughs> a film that is from. So I started with. You know, I was, I was craving. I've been loving the football recently. We're back in the Australian rules football. We are. We are. Footy season, on. and. I've always said, growing up, one of the biggest things when I wanted to be a filmmaker was I would love to have made an, an Aussie real, Rules film. Mm. And, you know, if you look around, we, we're still lacking that sufficient um, 
sort of quintessential, like, go-to Australian film, you know, and I, I'm a massive sports movie fan. Yeah. So I know pretty much every really good sport movie there is out there, and a lot of them are to do with boxing or basically a lot of individualized sports, not mm. team sports as much, because it's much tougher to encapsulate team sport, I think, in cinema. Um, oh, not necessarily, because I even, like, the first thing my, my brain went to was Mighty Ducks. That's obviously very team based, but it's, it's a bit more feel good. It's child, like I'm, I'm yeah. and obviously it has that more um, the 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 child side to it. Um, yeah. I think Mighty Ducks is a great example of like a good ensemble cast. Yeah, um, like you could totally do ensemble sport films. Yeah. I get what you mean because like like um, you look at something like King Richard. Mm-hmm. That's a bit more of an interpersonal story i also think tennis. maybe maybe we've just mastered the art of shooting particular types of sports like i think shooting um american football gridiron because it's so stop start makes it very easy to get cinematic beats mm. realist like in a practical sense boxing's the same it goes by rounds so a lot of um there's a lot of dialogue between rounds yeah um and i think it's interesting to talk about like the practicality of shooting um sport films and um afl is such a tricky one because afl has four quarters um yeah sure you've got a bench but you know like it's very it's such a quick game that it's so hard to really shoot it and i've seen a couple and never been impressed with uh, the films i've seen like blinder and stuff like that which at least blinder actually really is trying to shoot a bit of on-field stuff but yeah, Never when, really I, when I think of an AFL movie, like you have to shoot it differently from the broadcast that you watch. You have mm-hmm. to; the camera needs to be right in there. Yeah, that's how I imagine it. Yeah, so this is actually probably the one that's most positively regarded. And it's by okay. a, a Australian filmmaker, Bruce Beresford, who you might know. And I actually am going to talk about another one of his films because I actually went and watched another one of his films following okay. this. Um, his most synonymous film is uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Um, oh, right. Okay. And uh, <laughs> Ladies in Black from a more contemporary point of view. So not like a, not like on the same level as a Peter Weir. Like sure, sort of, sure. But he's but, made stuff people have heard of before. Yeah, and yeah. the club is... He actually did a lot of these. It was a 1980 film, and it follows um, sort of the... More the behind, complete utter behind the scenes of running and... AFL club so it's focusing more on the chairman the president and like the coach and sort of the boardroom battles rather than what's actually happening on the field so it's those it's actually based off a stage play and you can tell because it's grounded to predominantly just a boardroom sure um or like a coach's box like it's very um so it's a little more like money ball in that sense yeah a little more technical absolutely and I actually really enjoyed it Mm. um but obviously, so it's called the club. Still, this is what the movie is the club, about. and yeah, it's okay. actually they've they've utilised, and it's going to tie into another one of the, the the documentaries I watched this week. It's based around they've clearly asked back in 1980. They've asked permission for the Collingwood Football Club mm. to shoot on their facilities and such, and the team that is the club is is Collingwood. But obviously, they don't actually use the name. It's not excessively like. Co- dependent on Collingwood's history and such, it's but obviously Collingwood is a very prestigious uh, old club, so it's mm. actually a really good club choice. So why didn't they pick Frio in nineteen eighty? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, so it's quite a. It was actually quite an engaging film, and this sort of ties into the other Bruce Berriford film I watched, which was Breaker Morant, which is his highest rated film, ah. um, which is currently on Netflix. And I actually would nineteen eighty as well. Look at that. It's a busy year for wow. him. Um, another stage play film. Um, both of them star. Uh, I'm gonna get him up. Uh, Jack Thompson, who's a pretty common Australian actor, is pretty Thompson. well known. Yeah. Um, and that one is actually about three Australian soldiers going on trial, a court-martial trial centered around that um, for three Australian soldiers in the Boer War, or the mm. Boer War, which is the war that is kind of forgotten about. It was basically a bunch of um, English people trying to kick out a bunch of Dutch people from Africa just before World War One started. This is in 1908. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, obviously being a part of the Crown, Australians got sent there, but obviously what is kind of highlighted in Gallipoli too is our relationship to the Crown. That we, this is when we really started to obviously following Federation, really started to mm-hmm. single out the Australian identity. So the British people are really just using these three men as, as catalysts for um, basically continuing their invasion so they can seek eventually a peace treaty so they can really get access to the resources of Africa. Right. Um, which has a whole love it. But it's actually a really intricate script. I mean, it's got a far more grounded stage play vibe. It has to- um, layers and stuff, and it's actually a really engaging sort of small small film courtroom drama. So would 100% encourage yeah. people to... No, I'm looking at this. This looks fantastic. Mm. 3.9 on Letterbox. The only other friend I have who's seen it, Alex Winner. I want to give Alex Winner a shout-out. He's great. Yeah. But um, he gave it four stars as well. Look at that. Have and, you and caught anything in the last week, Jake? I have. Well, it's, it's funny because I'm looking at this list now of films that I have seen. It's primarily documentaries, which is good. Well, let's start with... Let's keep you in the conversations. Like, let's start with Once We're Brothers, which, of course, you talked about last week. We talked about the last waltz uh, mm-hmm. episode that we did and i was like all right well you know i'm very much into the band and uh, i love the last waltz so let's check out this other documentary that you recommended last week and i don't have too much to add based on what you talked about last week with it it's interesting i gotta admit i was not as much of a fan of this documentary as, as nearly as much as the last waltz mm-hmm. and i think the reason is this almost feels like the antithesis of what what the last waltz represents, which is a time and place, and a, and a, an energy that you can really only feel watching and and living and breathing mm-hmm. in a time and place in 1976 that it establishes this concert film in, but then this is a much more like traditional documentary where you're sort of getting these accounts looking back and and reflecting on and it does that big short thing where it sort of cut to these random shots of iconography about all right now we're in this time period. And I don't think it's inherently worse for being, you know, a conventional documentary. Yeah. But I think because of that, it sort of loses the timelessness that The Last Waltz has. Mm-hmm. And if it's going to be, like you say, a spiritual successor, and the fact that it, like, I watched it almost feeling the exact opposite of what The Last Waltz was in terms of that being a celebration of the music. And this, you know, it, it's allowed to be more negative, but it ultimately goes deeper into the band's desynchronization. And how, you know, Robbie was kind of on a different headspace than a lot of the rest of the band were, especially in terms of the drug use and everything. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is something you talked about last week. But I, I kind of walked out of it just being like, mm, it's a shame. And the, and the documentary is allowed to be more yeah. 
sort of a downer than than the other one. If anything, it reminds me of like we've talked about the Z. If we ever did a a Cat Empire documentary, would we do something that focuses on the joy of their music, or would we find a place in time where they where they're uh, you know it was a low point in the band? True. Which I guess would have been the time they were going to break up around that cinema age. And obviously they have now disbanded as of what last week, very very recently. Um, so you're sort of getting both ends. But I just I walked out of once where brothers been like ah, oh, I'm a little disappointed to be honest. Yeah, I think yeah. It, it's one of those things that I I like it because it adds content. Like it now it's like I said, go back and watch Last Waltz, and mm. you sort of get a different viewing context from it. Sure. You are sort of understanding that, wow, like, even though that there is really starting to be this wedge and distance between members on that stage, they can still cultivate and make art together and yeah. and sound so seamless and such, and they're so talented. But, yeah, look, it's sad. But I think this is the thing. It, it It's one of those things that they um, are just... It, it's very reflective mm. and they, you know, they just need to, it's really good to add that extra information. I love the, the, the Scorsese parts in it where he's right, sort yeah, of definitely talking him. more like a director's commentary. And, um, is it necessary viewing to watch before the last was? No, but I do think it adds an extra element to it. I, I it is th- definitely more context. It, it allows you to yeah. watch, and look at different things in that concert and or different elements and and chem and reevaluate how you perceive chemistry and mm. i think that that's really cool obviously the one of the best um one of the the good takeaways you can take from once we were brothers is because it's solely from robinson's account mm. due to um, he's only basically Gar- only well, living and member, garth yeah. obviously isn't on camera or anything like mm. that we can see that there's quite a subjective discourse there. So we're only getting one side of the, the fence. So we're not yeah. getting very round. So we could argue that a lot of things we're hearing are quite skewed. But Well, yeah, from... which that also... I've had that thought of, like... Not that I think he's lying by any means, but it feels a little like how... I feel like I got more out of the concert film. Yeah. Because that felt well, like a more honest portrayal of them. Significantly better, The Last Waltz. Like, yeah. if you... Even if you look at my scores, there is a there is a gulf oh, yeah, between course. the two. There's a good like star and a half difference. So it, it's more for me. It's just like oh, if like student extension. Oh, you really like this? There's yeah. a little bit more where that came from. So then you can then go back and watch the last waltz and have a whole different experience. Yeah, which bit of a companion piece. Yeah, yeah. Maybe spiritual success is the wrong term. Okay, maybe, fair enough. Maybe uh, extension. Uh, extension <laughs> homework. Yeah, because thematically, I definitely felt there was a bit of a jarring thing. I will give it a bit of praise. There was one moment where I'm guessing it was Robbie who's sort of going through the process of him discovering the weight and mm. him sort of like moving his hands and then the music comes in under the doco. Yeah. Like as he's sort of working out the beats of it. And that was a cool little moment, which I really liked. And I also wanted to give a shout out. We already sort of joked about this, but of course we do hear or see a bit of a performance of Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good in this film, which of course ties into the film of the mm. week, so I thought that was nifty. I think what I like also about um, is it's a real love letter to the band from other musicians, really verbally recounting how culturally important they were to Americana sure. music. It was Bruce, um, um, Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen in which it, yeah. is huge because it's like that. You know, he's sort of that 
next generation that comes through in the mid to late 70s um which is just about when the band's pretty much wrapped up so mm-hmm. it's sort of like that succession of of rock and how important they were and particularly i like the focus on the two tours with bob dylan like those segments yeah that's um, interesting yeah the stuff that's less um and then the reform you know sort of when leave on helm left after the first dylan tour and then it took him a couple of years to get back together to do music from big pink and i think that it's really interesting when they sort of start to look at um things like writing credits and how you can see a sl- like without without even realizing you are actually if you were at the time looking at writing credits and stuff you could probably read into this band's decline mm. as a as a morale um with robinson starting to write all of the songs yeah and- i was like covering cut 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 what the hell's the word i'm trying i'm not having a stroke gentlemen ladies and gentlemen um the carrying the slack is the word like carrying the the weight yeah Uh, (laughs) so it's a really i it's a good addition like companion piece i think it's an apt way of uh describing yeah no it's fair enough well speaking of companion piece i watched another musical documentary one you recommended to me a while ago finally got to it i watched the swell season Ooh. so uh for those who aren't aware it is I will call this a very twisted pseudo-doco sequel to Once, which, of course, is one of our favorite films ever. We did it way back in episode 26, I want to say, maybe mm. 27. Um, so, of course, it's Glenn Hansen, uh, Maketa, I believe it's Keta Maketa Elgal, I think it's, or Elgar, that's how you pronounce his surname. Uh, but it's, it's the two of them, it's a black and white concert slash documentary, it's Definitely not nearly as concert-heavy as The Last Waltz is. Mm-hmm. There's actually very few songs in this that actually are played from start to finish. It's very much a documentary following their tour, which, of course, came after the film's success, after they both won the Oscar for Best Original Song. And I thought this was absolutely fantastic. The reason I say it's sort of a pseudo-sequel is because their performances are so naturalistic and once mm-hmm. that when you see them in this doco just being themselves... There is so... The blurred line is so blurred, you cannot tell the difference between their performance in Once and then their quote-unquote performance in this documentary to the point where it's very surreal because it feels like you're just watching Once 2. <laughs> Except this is an alternative mm. alternative real universe where they started dating, um, which I think we talked about that on the original mm. episode that they did start dating in real life. But... Um, following that tour that they go on and, and a very raw look into the emotions that they both have in terms of them being a couple, in terms of their relationship with the fans. And they have little Vox boxes here of like the techies at the studios they go to and then the fans. And like, I think some of them got either tattoos or they drew on their arms, um, Glenn and Maketa each. So it was a really cool insight into that, really raw. And it does it covers the eventual breakup in a really interesting way. It's not like they break up on screen, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. but the way it's all edited and paced together. Again, it feels like you're watching watching once because yeah. it's just very cleverly edited and paced um, the way that you go through the emotions that the characters are going through and just... It's actually brilliant. It's so good. So I don't know if you've seen it yet. I have not. I know you, you, you found it and you sent it my way and, and we've both sort of been meaning to get to it, but... Um, you got to watch it, man. It's a perfect companion piece 
to once. There you go. But yeah. So that was that was excellent. I got one of the doco, but I can throw it back to you. Yeah, you so prefer. the one doco I covered this week, um, which sort of ties into the club conversation, AFL Focus, mm. uh, was directed by Marcus uh, Couple Dick and Josh Table. <laughs> I'm so um, mature. Oh, it's Cobble Dick. Um, <laughs> so uh, no, it's and- Collingwood Zeke. It's Collingwood. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is a 58-minute documentary. Um, I bring this up. I actually noticed this only just before the start of the show. The director, Josh Cable, um, is actually a West Australian um, director. Okay. He, uh, once upon a time, I used to umpire as a teenager up until oh, probably my early 20s as a, as a junior umpire for the East Fremantle District. And Josh Cable was... Uh, a little older than me, but right. uh, umpired with his little brother, and he was also in the whole filmmaking stuff, and oh, he used to do all the, the promo stuff for East Fremantle, and then that got passed on to me. Um, and so it's quite funny to watch a documentary. He ended up going. So this is quite interesting. So this is probably both his worlds meeting, because he did actually end up. I remember a couple of years ago he got a job with Collingwood for as their media press. Oh, well, the person. <laughs> there you go. So hence, I think this documentary is sort of lining up with his career. Um, and obviously it focuses on the um, Collingwood Magpies 2018 AFL season, particularly focusing around Nathan Buckley at the time, who was mm. their then coach, and a couple of the players, um, and just sort of discussing at that point in time, they were very much on the verge of letting Bucks go. They obviously have now, and in the uh, in 2022, he no longer coaches them, but... Mm. Um, this was the year they made it to the grand final out of nowhere and out of nowhere and lost by five points to West Coast <laughs> in possibly the most heartbreaking uh, finish. Um, I remember that game all too well. If you're a West Coast supporter, it was the greatest day ever. But um, <laughs> I am not. So see, I don't know who I hate more. Between the Eagles and Collingwood. <laughs> yeah, they talk about that Collingwood stuff. I, I probably hate West Coast more than Collingwood, but... Um, Fair enough. Uh, it's probably more the Collingwood fans, more yeah. more so. But anyway, who cares? But it, it sort of talks about the culture of a club. It, it, it's honestly, it's... They actually went on to do um, that. I talked about it on the show, but... Mm. Um, the Making Your Mark series on Amazon where they follow them through the 2020 year uh, year on Prime and they follow a bunch of players through the AFL season. Mm. This is sort of like People a smaller... People eh? Yeah, or well, they loved it. Yeah, and yeah. they need to do, do season two because it was amazing. <laughs> um, and yeah, they definitely need to do another one of those. But this is sort of like a... Almost feels like a, a very small scale version of that. It's enjoyable. It's, it's pretty... What you expect, very traditional documentary. Um, very nice. But definitely, ex- I love exploring sort of the mindset of live performers or live mm. sportsmen in their seasons. Definitely. Um, the only other, the three things I watched, I watched with uh, um, Lucinda on a day together, which was quite interesting. Mm. Um, yeah, well, you get away. You can t- <laughs> you always tell when you have a girlfriend because it's like your films completely change tonally. Uh, <laughs> Got to be a letterbox, yeah. But I'll, I'll quickly burst through these. So I watched, um, I don't know. When you, you when you see when you see Sister Act on my letterbox, you know, Jake, the, the transformation's complete. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> Angus Thongs and Perthwick Snogging is a British sort of coming of wow, age. Wow, that's a throwback. <laughs> I've never seen this. Have you seen this? I haven't seen it, but I've, I've, I knew about this film when it came out, and I never got to it. Um, yeah, look, it's it would have been something I might have enjoyed a lot Perfect more. Perfect Snogging. It's it's. It's fun. Yeah. It's a fun film. It's efficient. It's good at its... It's a perfect... P- I mean, it's done by Nickelodeon movies, so it's like, what do you expect? <laughs> it's a perfectly cute film to watch, and you get a laugh out of it here or there. I do like a bit of British humour. Unlike Coda, though, it didn't win Best Picture. <laughs> Give me in between as any day of the week, though. <laughs> yeah, um, well, the other two you saw look to be animated films. Yes. The last two I'll talk about, um, obviously, are the latest from Pixar, which is... Uh, Turning Red mm. and the latest from Disney Animation uh, yeah I guess Encanto. so yeah. um, Oscar nominated and did it win did it win for it bloody yeah I think it won it did win Oscar winning film okay so this is really interesting because I had a pretty um, strong debate with I really liked Turning Red um, yeah I liked I was surprised I liked it too I, I really liked it um, and I had a sort of a divisive debate with, with Lucinda about this obviously centered around the subject matter. It's a really interesting sort of debate where viewing context as, as two men, it's can be a little bit... Two middle-aged men. Uh, it can be a little bit... Obviously, the subject matter centers around sort of women coming of age, adolescent sort of challenges. Yeah, pre-teen, um, uh, Asian-Canadian, young girl. Yeah. There's a lot of like period jokes in the film. And this is the thing. It's like I'm a big fan of how brave Pixar is with this, and this led to this debate on unlike on... the film from pixar called brave yes yeah um <laughs> i like that they're sort of trying to tackle slightly more mature issues um maybe they're trying mm. i i sort of can see where lou was suggesting that these films are should be entirely targeted either at kids or adults and that sort of they've always skipped the teenage middle um, if you really think about it. And I kind of agree to that sentiment because... It's sort of the whole, like, when you see an ad for an animated film, like, fun for the whole family, you're always like, except teens. <laughs> yeah, and they've always left teens out of it. When you really think about it, it's like you watch Toy Story and there's stuff there for the parents and then there's yeah. the simplicity of the plot is easy for kids to understand. Yeah. So it is always... Or well, even the, just the visuals and the fun toys and, talking and flapping around. and Sure, Toy Story yeah. 3 came out when we were teenagers, but at that point we had grown up with 1 and 2, so by the time we got to 3, we had the ability of, of the gr- the growth of that franchise. Yeah, sure. Um, whereas these sort of standalone films have often just been safely... You know, with the... Like, even Inside Out is far more innocent than this film is. Oh, tackling, of course it is, yeah. Um the similar age mm. too. Like, so that's why I kind of like how bold this film's trying to be. But at the same time, is it going to be looked, uh, are we going to see a shift from Pixar? Are we going to start to move into these more? Are they going to try and tackle that teenage demographic? And if so, is it even going to be successful? Because we as grown adults can look at this and go, that's really empowering for a 13 year old, but mm. is a 13 year old going to find this empowering? Like or relatable, or or is it going to make them feel like they're being talked down to? And I think that there's that interesting because what does a thirteen year old mm. want to do? They want to watch stuff that's a bit risque for them. Yeah, well, it's funny because when I, the, I'll never forget this quote from my high school media class. We're, we're watching some sort of One Direction music video. Yeah, and they ask, you know, and the whole thing is they're getting chased by all these like seventeen, eighteen year old girls, and 
you know, our Mr. Anderson, our teacher, asks, like, well, who's this for? Who's the target audience? He said, well, 17, 18-year-old girls. He's like, no, 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 13, 14-year-old girls. Mm-hmm. Because they want to watch this and think in a couple of years, that's where they want to be. And I always thought that was very interesting. So you arguing pursuit. that seeing uh, Turning Red's for 10-year-olds? Well, not in that scenario, but more so that I think we need to give the younger generations the benefit of the doubt, where if you're 11, 12 watching this film, it's mm. it, it's not going to be... I don't think it's necessarily talking down to you, because it's a very cutesy way of presenting something that I don't want to say is an overly serious discussion. It just takes this idea of puberty and sort of... It, it, it You're right, it's a little more risque with it, with the period jokes and like how sort of deep it goes into that but then you're right that the, the plot is a girl turning into a giant panda when she gets mm. sort of moody so th- there's a weird mix there i think for me the reason i liked it so much is because you can s- you can actually see the director's voice and i think more than any other pixar film you can actually see the director individual not plural, i agree the voice in this film even with like the anime stuff that sort of sneaks in it just feels like an actual voice coming through and i i appreciated that aspect of it. Yeah. I think, look, the reality is I really like the film. I actually gave it a very favourable score. I was quite favourable on it. Did, but yeah. uh, I do see that point of being like, I could ask who this is for because I, as a 25-year-old man, go, well, that's really poignant and powerful. And a lot of the press has been a lot of fully grown adults being like, this sure. is really powerful for 13, young, like that young teen. And yeah. I'm like, I don't know, as a 13-year-old, if even a, like a 13-year-old guy, I would really see the the poignance of it. But um, look, I guess time will, it, yeah. time will tell. It's hard to tell because like we don't... If we had kids who were this age, yeah. that'd be interesting to see. Because frankly, it's like at 13, I'm watching Walking Dead. Like, <laughs> So it's we've always got to have that sort of perspective there. You know, or I'm watching... Like Star Wars, like yeah, like Clone Wars or something but, like but that. But to what you said earlier, if a ten-year-old watched Turning Red, I feel like some of those jokes are still going to go over their heads in the same way they went over our heads when we watched Toy Story yeah. as a five, six-year-old. So I think it's yeah, it's a it's a good. What I like is I agree, mm. director's voice. I think it's really nice to see something that doesn't feel like it's out of a a cardboard cutout yeah. and pushed like pushed out of a piece of cardboard that's got those cutout holes in it. <laughs> like it actually unlike the other film that I watched Encanto which feels like gonna go back to that red letter media thing where it's just like passive progressivism <laughs> that's still one of but, the greatest quotes um, well it is because it's like they're in like I'm, I'm gonna touch on this <laughs> and I actually think Lou pointed something out that I really liked where it's almost mm. like particularly these Disney animated films that are targeted predominantly, let's be realistically, at that sort of 7 to 12 demographic. Um, and are most effective there. in there. And they're almost getting to a point where a lot of them are just like, let's do a bunch of really... And she said this, mm. you know, it's a dance, a dance teacher and stuff and who has to... who teaches that demographic. So she's using that Bruno song... Oh, yeah. And it's sort of like, and all the parents' reactions to it are, oh my God, not this song again. So it's almost a frozen effect. And what's that? (laughs) That's the conclusion, like she drew. And I really agree with this point with the fact that it's about like making a movie, a 90 minute feature, and just shoving in as many catchy songs in there. 
And it's more about selling the movie on the catchy songs rather than actually having a substantially interesting plot or something to say. Because mm. Encanto's got nothing to say that, uh, like, a myriad of other Pixar I, I haven't or even Disney seen it, films. and I can tell you right now, it's a girl, she doesn't have powers, the rest of her family has powers, but she's special because she's she's still an individual. That's, that's the message of the film. I haven't seen it. But I'm pretty confident that's what the message of the film it's is. Exactly. You She's hit it. Congratulations. You watched Encanto. Good stuff. You you saved yourself 100 <laughs> minutes and but, a bunch of legitimately kind of annoying songs. Like, Well, well look, I, I will say this, though, because it's like, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world for a film to, like, it basically, it's what cements it as, like, oh, th- this is, like, what the film is going for it is anything other than just the story and or plot or characters. I don't think... I don't think that's the worst thing in the world if Encanto is only good for its music, necessarily, or it's a vehicle for that. I guess. If I watch it and I can't really... It feels commercial, it doesn't feel creative, then sure, I will will buy that. But I don't don't think that's inherently a bad thing. I think... I'm sorry, but good animation is not a... Is not a tick... It's not a... You get praise for how beautiful your animation is when you're Disney or Disney Pixar. When you've Mm. got that kind of money, there's no excuse. I'm sorry. Like, so you don't get the part... You don't get the, oh my God, but the animation was beautiful. Sure, yeah. You just don't anymore. Whereas if you're some... Like, if you're a smaller They're going to afford all the computers to farm that animation. Yeah, exactly. would take another studio literally years to render. Space Age Odyssey. (laughs) You know, we just talked about the kids. Oh my God, it's so good. The rotoscoping. It's like there's a much smaller studio doing something actually creative and substantial and and it's and fantastic it's, it sticks out because the, the the actual like graphic design of it yeah and the artistic like the visualness what, it, it what sony's out. done with it's, its animation in the last couple of years it's mm. trying something different and we we appreciate it because it stands out and we remember that the themes and such look the songs are catchy but it's like when i talk about the passive aggressism side it's like they literally their family it was just an amalgamation of different... Co- like, it had no cultural... When I say it has no cultural identity, I mean, like, they don't actually have... So if we take something like Coco, which I really liked, we're focusing, great, yeah. we're focusing on the intricacies of a Mexican cultural family. Hmm. And that's great. Let's explore that world, that distinct cultural identity. I'm all for that. Encanto basically just goes, we're having... This, ca- this, this family is a G20 summit of people. Like, and it's only doing it just so it can be like, well, we've got all these different cultures in there with different cultural voices, yet none of them have succinct or distinct voices that express whatever cultural background they're from. Because mm. the extended members of the family that marry into this this family, this La Madri, the Madrigals, are all like either from like African or Anglo origins. So then their kids are like... This and you're just like, okay, yeah, I get it. Families do have are multicultural, and we should always like that's totally real. But there's no identity to this house. I don't know where this place is. It's just this magical land mm. where it has no identity at all. Is it in a land called Encanto? No, no. <laughs> the Encanto is the magical element that gives the family okay. powers. Fair enough. And they I took act, a wild swing they, there. <laughs> but then they like they, they sort of imply, because of the, the Madrigal, it's like yep. they're basically implying that they're a Hispanic or a Spanish or some sort of South American family. But they don't really... There's no celebration of South American culture or anything like that. It's just so happened that that's the family. and Because they, don't, they almost don't want to lean too much into that because then they get the critiques that, oh, 
all new Disney or Pixar films are just focusing on non-English speaking cultures now just to be and they can't like they're just trying to people please too much mm. and in that once again in that pursuit for progressivism they're losing any sense of identity in their stories it's not an interesting plot at all it has nothing to offer it is a, it's literally just a simplish plot that's there to enable a bunch of songs that eventually get nominated and win Oscars yeah <laughs> and drive parents up the wall I imagine <laughs> Like I said, I don't think that's inherently a bad thing. There are films that do that that are good, but it sounds like then just call it a musical. Like that's all. Like, like, but don't brand it like there is a musical, is it not? No, it's not called musical. Like it's not a musical film. Like it's not the mute. Like it's not a music. Like I, I would not put it in the like it would not be put in a musical genre category because they try and put. I assumed I assumed it was a musical. I don't think it's labeled as a musical. I'll double check it. Like, I mean, to be fair, Letterboxd probably is going to list, like, four genres. But if I click on... Here we go, genres. Oh, animation, comedy, family, fantasy. Okay, there you go. No musical. That's the four, one... Four for four and none of them are musicals. But it treats it like it's trying to be, like, more thought-provoking than what it is, when it 100% is not. You right. summed up the plot, a 100-minute plot, in a <laughs> sentence. Like, it's just... I'm sorry. It's just... You still go three stars though, because it's like, because it's, it. it's not like terrible. Like it's there's nothing like wrong with it. It does what it needs to do, but just don't turn around. It, it's on a three point eight or a three point nine. It's like stop pretending like this is better than what it is. I'm sorry. Like it's just all right. All right, back to you. What was what what a documentary? <laughs> well, that that's it for you, isn't it? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the only other documentary I saw was actually. Actually, my brother made me watch this. Okay. He really wanted me to watch Ambulance this past weekend. Okay. And I was like, eh. Yeah. And then she's like, all right, we can watch something at home. So we watched When We Were Kings, which is a 1996 documentary. I think it actually won Best Documentary at the Oscars. I didn't know that until after I'd seen it. Um, but we sat down, and it is a, well, it's a boxing documentary. It covers Muhammad Ali mm-hmm. and George Foreman's uh, fight in 1974, which was a big fight at the time. I think sort of Foreman was kind of, he was kind of the newcomer coming in, the yep. young hip one and Muhammad Ali's kind of on his way out I guess but there was a big championship there and is it, is it Don King is that his name that sort mm-hmm. of he put the bets out and he's like alright well I'm going to pay you this and you that and we're going to do this fight um, so I'm not really much of a boxing guy I didn't really know any about this watching the documentary but I gotta say thoroughly enjoyed it I yeah. thought it was an excellent docker it absolutely covers what it was a lot of first hand accounts a lot of footage from the time and you obviously got a lot of behind the scenes footage of both Foreman and Ali sort of talking smack about each other and what are they saying in private and during training sessions. And I just like the amount of footage that I actually got to capture it. I mean, it's kind of like not, um, it wasn't fire. What's the other doco we talked about? Where is this? Oh, you know what? I think shot in the dark is one of those. It's a doco series on Netflix, which is like nightcrawler, but real life. That was just like, you're constantly blown away watching that documentary. Cause there's just so much, footage that they got like mm. insane footage and i kind of got the same feeling here with when we were kings where i'm just watching it's been like wow this is i'm living and breathing this time period and what's cool is that the fight actually takes place in central africa which they really delve into why that's so important and why it's so important for that community in africa um especially with the social political sort of mysteries and the, and the political figures at the time and their involvement um but it was. I just thought that was such a well-rounded thing, and they mm. really incorporated all the music as well. They got music from like James Brown and BB King, and you know, got the spinners. Now, to be fair, 
I think the idea was that the director actually flew there to cover Zaire 74, which they called the, the Black Woodstock Soul Music Festival. I think 74, being the one that takes place in 1974. I don't know which uh, festival. This could be the 6th or 7th or 10th, I'm not sure which. But the idea was, I think he was going to film that adjacent to the fight happening, but then the fight got delayed because Foreman, I think, cut like his eyebrow or his eye, but he so he wasn't able to fight that to delay the fight. But he ended up covering those music festivals and incorporating that music, which, of course, you know, very cultural music and the way mm. it wraps around Central Africa and especially... These two fighters, of course, they're black fighters, but um, sort of lean politically on different sides in terms of what they present for African-Americans in particular. I just thought it covered all of those elements in such an interesting, brief way. It's like 85 minutes as well, mm. but it just feels so well paced. And it doesn't feel like a, a quick film, but it, it, it is snappy in the sense that you really feel like, wow, this covered so much ground. So I really, I thought it was excellent. So, yeah. Very Shout out sick. to When We Were Kings. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. Well, if you don't have anything to add to the career section. I do. <gasps> Excuse me, Morgan Hind. In fact, I do. Uh, so this past week, a film came out that I worked on. Spicy. Spicy. It feels like a long time since that's happened. <laughs> what was the film? So it's called Outbreak, a Star Trek fan film. So, of course, it is uh, one of the... Many Star Trek fan films made in Perth as part of the collection for These Are the Voyages, which I think, you know, there was a bunch of short films and now I think Aaron's is making it into like a series where it's like um, Series 1, Ep 1, Series mm. 1, Ep 2. And then this is, I think this is Series 2, Episode 2. And it's, like I said, it's called Outbreak. And we actually talked about this on Episode 138 of the podcast, which I'm trying to remember what that was. Whatever it was, it was 138, but that's the one where I talked about having been there on set shooting it that weekend. Mm. So that's that's a lot of weeks. We're at 170 now, so... Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's quite a while ago. We doubled our money. One. I know, yes, there you go, exactly. But um, no, I very much enjoyed it. As someone who has absolutely no idea about Star Trek whatsoever, <laughs> mm. all of my like, oh, that's an interesting editing, directing choice just sort of leans into, oh, I'm guessing that's how Star Trek is. And they're sort of doing it to replicate that. Which from that standpoint... That's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Even like the little, the um, opening text coming up on the bottom of the screen, like, you know, any TV show you're watching is like, this is nifty. This is cool. And it flows really well. And, and I, w- I wasn't there for every day. I was there for most of the shoot. I think it was like one or two scenes was like, I don't think I saw them shoot this, but the vast majority of it I was there for. And I was, they gave me the on the set assistant credit, which means I did sound best boy gaffing assistant, um, BTS, mm. first day, the second AC, sorry, with clapping and <laughs> I did everything. Raking <laughs> in the IMDb credits. Oh, well, I just get the one because of the bloody onset <laughs> assistance. <laughs> oh, no it's worries. It's well, fine. if it's you want to go check that out, Jake, where do you go check it out? It's on YouTube. There you go. So look it up. The use of tubes. The use of tubes. Outbreak, a Star Trek fan film. Check it out. Well, it is time for us to move to our film in a week and latest director's corner. But Jake, who's the director? And what are we watching? Loki forgot this was Director's Corner. <laughs> <laughs> this week of the show, we're talking about Robert Zemeckis' Back to the Future. Steven Spielberg presents Back to the Future, a Robert Zemeckis film. Marty leads an ordinary life. No McFly ever amounted to anything in the history of Hill Valley. Well, history is going to change. And 1985 is not his year. But Dr. Brown is about to change all that. 
Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? He's sending Marty 30 years back in time. Now, he's trapped in the past. This has got to be a dream. About to meet... Chocolate. ...his future father. He's a peeping tough. Wow! And he's making an impression on his mother. He's an absolute dream. And he can sleep in my room. Ah. Anything you do could have serious repercussions on future events. Ah! Now, he's got to make his mother and father fall in love. For crying out loud, I haven't even been born yet. And only Dr. Brown... <laughs> can help him get back to the future. Are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Precisely. Michael J. Fox. Whoa, this is heavy. Christopher Lloyd. There's that word again, heavy. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? Back to the future. 80s teenager Marty McFly is accidentally sent back in time to 1955, inadvertently disrupting his parents' first meeting and attracting his mother's romantic interest. <laughs> Marty must repair the damage to, to history by rekindling his parents' romance and, with the help of his eccentric inventor friend Doc Brown, return to 1985. Oh, that sounds like a terrible story. <laughs> it's kind of funny, isn't it? Like, which Which part? Just like how odd the plot is but i'm sort of thinking on the first couple of chapters of save the cat the blake snyder Ah, script writing novel and he talks about the beauty of a log line and he's like make it controversial like have like that like a hint of irony hint of irony and it's sort of like yeah going back in time and getting the affection of his mother like Sort of does really hook you in with intrigue, <laughs> where that's gonna go. Well, the log. To be fair, the lo- the the actual one sentence logline is Marty McFly travels back in time using his eccentric scientist a time machine. However, in order to return to the present, he must make his high school age parents fall in love again. So I think I think if you're gonna look at like, I mean the hook is right there. In order, well that's the stake. In order to return to the present, yeah. And then I guess the the ironic part is the fact that his parents are his age now. And that, I think that's sort of the thing that I think Bob and, and um, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis talked about is the very core embryonic thing of Back to the Future is wondering, like, would I be friends with my parents if I met them at my age? That is the embryonic concept that turned into Back to the Future. Which yeah. Is, that's a great question. And we'll have that. And, and, and it's all about that, relate, like you said, that platonic relatability there, which sort of underlies particularly our more mature grown-up relationships with our parents so you know it's something my my mum said to me and i think i brought it up on the show before where mm. the older you get when you start to move like when you become your own adult you become more equals with your your parents like there's always going to be that that inert nature nurture aspect to them that they'll never actually fully ever lose and you'll never lose but sure you become more intellectual equals and your relationship does become more platonic in that sense mm. and or can become more platonic or actually even more alien and more foreign because and some people dependency some, independency that yeah kind of like and too. some children really just don't get along with their parents as people so when they move to a point of self-sufficiency and self-efficacy they become quite distant with their parents mm. or at least hold a distance where some maintain a really strong relationship with some of their parents. 
And this sort of encapsulates it because obviously in the first part of this film, we really do see how sort of alien not only Marty, but I would say to a, to an extent, all of his all of his siblings feel to their parents. Mm. There's a there's a general uh, depression <laughs> in this family, but not even like a not even like they're really poor. Like there's something out of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like they're all sharing <laughs> the same bed and stuff like that. No. Well, well, in terms um, of like the respect they have for each other, it's like Marty doesn't really have much respect for his parents. Not you know, not he's not rebellious to them. But it's like his dad's a bit of a square, and he he won't fight back against his boss. And his mum's obviously quite depressed in her situation, mm. and she talks about meeting his dad at the um at the enchantment under the sea dance. Yeah. And <laughs> but then she sort of talks about it and is almost just sad about how things have turned out, and um that obviously plays into the relationship he has with them as their younger selves, yeah. and being surprised by like the ambitions of George McFly. And, oh, he actually. Like wanted to, he wanted to be a science fiction writer, and that's absolutely not the uh, the picture I had for my own dad at that time. And you know, the same with the mum. Like, oh, she's he. Well, first off, he's a peeping tom, but then mm. she's also she lies about like, oh, you know, when I was your age, I wouldn't chase any boys, and that's exactly what she does in yeah. this film. So it's like there's that play of expectation there. But without getting too far into it, I mean, we're talking about Back to the Future, Zeke. Yeah. This might be, hands down... I mean, it's very easy to say it's probably one of the greatest films of all time. Easily. It's. I'd say it's... You know, and it comes back to even my trivia fact. It's one of the most, like... Tidy films mm. of all time. There's, like, really nothing It's wrong a perfect with it. screenplay. Nothing wrong with it from post to post. Yeah. It has a perfect three-act structure. It... Has a perfect mix of diegetic, non-diegetic sounds, simple protagonist, antagonists. There's no. It's innocent, yet thoroughly entertaining. Um, it's it, it probably is next to something like Jaws, and it really kind of fits in that category of it is just the perfect summer blockbuster film. Mm. Really, yeah. In I um, mean, an audi- like an audience. So it was about two years ago I saw all three of them in the cinema and I actually tracked down it's our Baby Teeth episode, episode 81, where I talked about having seen them all again in the cinema, which was a fresh experience for me. And I think, when, when was the first time you saw this film, if you can even remember? Because these these mm. films particularly were like grown up. These were the, the films you watch as a child. Yeah. That you probably watch probably a little ahead of the time that you should have started watching them, but because honestly, most of the, the naughtier, like the more risque points in this, you get go over your head as a child. So you really can watch this film as like an eight year old and still just enjoy it. Yeah. I think I first um, saw it when I was like maybe 10 or 11. I think I would have watched it around eight or nine. Yeah. Like, cause it's a safe film. I mean, you don't really grasp the inappropriate nature of his mother being into him or any of that sort of stuff. Like, you just, you really, you lose that because, you know, especially that Griff is such a over-the-top villain that it's <laughs> so, it gr- you is, really just get caught in the... Is, isn't Griff, I think Griff's the the, gra- the great-grandson or the grandson. B- 
Biff, sorry. It's Biff, yeah, and then, and then Griff's right. the other one. Yeah, I forget. <laughs> Those I forget. names are brilliant, by the yeah. way. <laughs> well, that's it, but it's that Biff comedic nature or, or the fact that yeah. like Christopher Lloyd's character is so zany. Oh, my God, um, Christopher Lloyd. Oh. That you're you just get caught up with the the coolness of the oh they're going back in future and yeah. and and you know like the casting Michael J Fox is just the perfect Marty McFly's this cool but kind of like cool kid that's really hot headed but never backs it up and has that sort of not even manly voice like he has quite a high pitched voice like mm, he's very yeah manly but also kind of a little feminine like there's that undertone there like that shrill teenager feminism yeah well yeah he's intimidated by the bully you know the bully (laughs) that represents sort of the masculinity there yeah i would have said i would have consistently watched this film a million times it's probably my most watched film i think it'd be up there Mm. at least it would be in the conversation with things like a new hope and um Films like that, I'd say, um, it's because it's just entertaining. Like I said, I watched. Mm. I think I've watched the second one, um, just as much, if not more. And I think I prefer the second one, but it's yeah. hard to wow. disagree with how good this film is. Well, I think you I think said it's it earlier. Intro to this film, like a million times. Yeah. Well, that that's in it. It's like when I <laughs> when I was ten or eleven, and it was the intro. I it was the you know the camera doing it sort of pan track around Doc Brown's room, which is perfect, like, environmental storytelling. Before you even see Doc Brown, you know exactly who this character is. But it was, like, it was that shot with the, the text coming in when I saw it playing on TV, and it came up Back to the Future. I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen this before. Like, I get to watch... And I just sat there and watched the whole thing on TV from start to finish, and mm. absolutely adored it. But but to that point, you said it earlier, I don't think this is not only one of the greatest films ever made. It's, one, it's probably the coolest film ever made. And yeah. that that is... That is something I think is actually so important to this film is that it is just so There was a lot cool. of cool in like the mid seventies to like mid eighties. Like that whole decade just had a lot of coolness. Yeah. But I think I think Back to the Future is so effortless. Or it seems so effortless when you watch it. And like you said, like Michael J. Fox and he was working hard because he was doing like television in the day and then at night he would like say up to work on this film and they had to like really scramble to get him involved because I think Eric Stoltz did like five weeks of shooting mm. so they shot to your fun fact about it only taking nine weeks from mm. wrapping to, to actually completing the film they probably edited a good chunk of the scenes that marty mcfly is not in because they shot all of that with eric stoltz yeah and then all of his coverage they had to completely reshoot with michael j fox and to that point having filmmakers in the 80s that just they probably pissed out so much money to redo all of that but they just yeah. knew it's not working. We need we need and Michael J. Fox, and he quick, completely brings it. The quick post production turnaround was probably like you said. It's a credit to the pre production. The production design is is they probably the amount of immaculate planning or or constant script doctoring this script would have under the screenplay would have undertook before really getting into the intricacies of production. Um, it's probably you know it'd be really interesting to see the script screen comparison because it's probably close to one to one. Oh, I couldn't imagine there'd be a lot of be, yeah. there'd be a lot of ad libbing and such like that because of how much of the visual visual reflection that happens between past present mm. like the like the OTS shots with or especially over the course of the three films how right. intricately 
repetitive it is. And it's meant to be like that. Or like how things completely mirror other things or... Well, even the dialogue itself, like when... So I unfortunately didn't have time to watch it in the last week. I, if there's any film I can wing, it's Back to the Future. But the, the, out of the two scenes that I had a minute to watch earlier today, one of them was, of course, like the initial DeLorean, like going in time and Doc explaining it. And almost every single line that the Doc has plays into the plot or the story at some point. Even him just describing yeah. that the mole, are, the mole they, or the, the parking lot they're in now, this used to just be miles and miles of greenery or you know whatever you're saying, and then that motivates where he ends up yeah. in that farm when he teleports it there really and needs the plutonium. And every line is deliberate. thought out. And it's from and then like you said, the visual story stuff, like the the uh, the full rotation shot around it, Doc's apartment is all there just to just as basically exposition with speechless exposition, yeah. just to make sure you know exactly what's happening, why he's going to this parking lot at one in the morning and or late at night, 11, 11 at night or something like that. And I think I think it was yeah, like one. It's funny because the time, the time um, accuracy they have to be accurate because I think he arrives at. He runs at like one fourteen, and then when when he pulls out Einstein's stopwatch, that's like one twenty versus one twenty one. Like that, that had to be so spot on with mm-hmm. the timing because time is very important in this film. Yeah, <laughs> and I think what what I like about all three of these films is how how the rules of time travel are like. It's one of those things. Time travel films they've they got to the point where it's like by the time they got to what Avengers. Endgame, they were just like, eh, we don't really care. The rules <laughs> is what it is. Just get over it. Don't try and don't try and pick at it. Yeah. Um, whereas, like this film was like, no, no, this thing, every causation has a reaction or a ripple yep. effect. Yeah. Um, they're obviously most of the time quite simplish ripple effects because it only real like, but we actually see everything. <laughs> the what I love is like this, even the subtle things that change because Marty goes back or like making the new mayor of, of the Valley or <laughs> mayor, you know, <laughs> That's a good be interesting one. if there was a real musical Renaissance because he's playing Johnny B. Good about. <laughs> well, that's the whole joke with Chuck Berry. Yeah. Yeah. Marvin Berry, yeah. you know, that new sound yeah. you've been looking for. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, that's all implied, but to your point, you're right. There are, I think there are two, like central different ways you can do time travel. And I actually, you know, I've actually thought about it short recently where I'm like, oh, I could implement this sci-fi element into it. The one I've always preferred is the one that Bill and Ted, or at least the first two Bill and Ted's abide by, and that everything is predetermined and going to happen. So, if, you know, if they leave something or they change something, that was always meant to happen. There was no course correction of that. Back to the Future does it the other way, which I'm not as much of a fan of this idea of like you're right the ripple effect mm. that Marty will go back in time and do something that will then cause him to not exist and change the future. Now I think these films and especially this one, they set that up really well, and yeah. the film wouldn't work without it because the entire point is Marty will cease to exist if he doesn't achieve his goal of getting his parents back together. Like it's very simple. You need yeah, it's very simple. It's not like he squishes a bug and the future's 1984. Although you yeah. never know, it could be. But it, it's a very much like, oh, these two people didn't meet the way they're meant to. Well, the second film his... taps into that a little bit more. Sure. It's a um, little bit more like, like crazy alternative scenarios. Well, I, what I like about the second film, because obviously the director's class is the best part. We can, <laughs> we can talk about Robert Smith. And, and look, if you want to <laughs> touch on, unfortunately, I don't think any of us caught any additional Zemeckis stuff. We, no, unfortunately. We did discuss this. 
would love to go see who, who framed Roger Abbott, but oh, as we touched on really post-show, Zemeckis has had a tough run in the last 10 to 15 years, hasn't it? Yeah, look, I've actually seen The Walk. I didn't realise that was him, which I got Levitt, which I remember enjoying at the time. I probably would watch it back and maybe not enjoy it as much. He did The Witches very recently, which was, I'm pretty sure, a critical bomb. But you can actually see... He gets into the animation realm a lot in his later career with the Polar Express, which it's it's a very memed movie these days. But we both still like it quite a lot. The Polar yeah, Express. Yeah, why is it why is it memed? Is it because it's, it's just the a bit Uncanny awkward? Valley is like ridiculous. What does that mean? As in, like the way they look and animate their faces, it's just really weird. It didn't age very well. Uh-huh. Assuming the film itself, like the use of camera, the actual the visual element of it. Because you can compare it to something like Tintin, which you know is a globe-trotting, daylit adventure, and Polar Express takes place, I think, exclusively at night. So it kind of gives it that darker look to yeah, it. Not what? Film. Maybe that might be our Christmas film this year. Yeah, tap into go. that. You never know. But to that point, like he really dwelled into animation with that, and then a Christmas Carol, which I'm guessing that oh, holds that up last better. Year. Yeah, I last that. year. I watched that last year. I actually didn't mind it. No, oh, there you go. I loved it when it came out. I don't know if it holds up like the animation anymore, but it's a scary movie. It is. What a, what a thing to what a terrible thing to teach kids. <laughs> we're talking about we're talking about how soft things have gotten. It's like that's. Cause, what do you mean? That's a terrible thing to teach kids, though. Well, ter- sorry, t- terribly scary things. Sure, sure. Watch the Muppets version. Scare it's way more crap. fun. Oh, I feel like that would be even more scary. Oh, the Muppets yeah, are great. The eighties Christmas Carol is terrifying. That is te- like all the deaf iconography is mm. just. With the with the skeleton hand pointing at the ground. Oh my god! Christmas Carol is just a scary story. Yeah, it's not it's a happy always film. portrayed scarily. But to the point, Zemeckis deciding to do an animated version of that. Yeah, like he went in a very interesting direction. But he's probably walking in that thing with the witches. I, we haven't seen the witches. No, I'm guessing there's a lot of like CGI elements in it that just sort of make it. Yeah, and look, not, we've kind of tapped on mm. like, you know, it's like in Spielberg look. West Side's got a pretty warm reception. It's like, sure, you know, we're not saying that he's out of the realm of making a good movie anymore, but he hasn't had a, a great run in the live action stuff recently. And um, mm. look, so these films are definitely the most synonymous and well known for him. And and just as well, you really only need one series, and this series is kind of, I mean, this made this man's career, and it made most of their careers, and has made them all very like, well off because of it. And it's, like you said, it is one of the best films of all time. Like, and there's no question for that. Like, it 100% is easily and should be in most cinephiles' top 50, at least. You know, I literally don't think I know anyone who doesn't like Back to the Future. That would blow my mind. Get Although... A back, get a backhand. If I had a little bit of a mind blow. that Kirsty didn't know there were sequels to it. That's crazy to me. I was I was a little shocked. I was like, yeah. what? That's like they're that's crazy. excellent. <laughs> yeah, I think. It, but what I like, what I was going to touch on is mm. what I like about like the second and the third film is imagine going to the cinema and watching this film in 1985, highest grossing film in 1985 oh, too. There you go, no surprise. But good. Second one doesn't come out to 87. So is it know, 87? 87, I think so. I got I've, 89. It was 89. even later. Yeah, even four later. years. Yeah. Um, well, they all age pretty well. I think the the 91 might be the last one. It's like a tight turnaround. Well, the, I think two and three, they block shot, or they, um, I don't know if that's the term block shot, but they, they shot them at the same time. 
And that's why at the end of two, there's essentially just a big trailer for the third movies because they had already shot it. Yeah. And it was meant to be one giant film. They split into a trilogy. Very Hobbit-esque, I guess. Cool. Um, Makes sense, though. But what I like about... Um, and that that actually explains a lot of... Especially the, the, the casting changes or prob- casting issues they had with two. Because um, obviously... There's a whole thing with Kristen Glover, which we... That was like a lawsuit thing we can get into. And then... And, and they the recast... Girlfriend. Girlfriend. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, so what I like, though, is that's years of this film, you know, staying at the top of this game, being probably played in cinemas consistently over that four years for just sure. spots here and there, and then probably had a really long cinematic run in its original release. But people asking the time-travelling questions and stuff, in which the second one overtly addresses. Why doesn't Marty try and, like, place some bets and stuff, like, to tie sort of that stuff into the plot of right. the second one and then you know biff making this real like <laughs> horrible 1984 <laughs> future where um she worked out well my comparison well to be fair i i would have never questioned that in the original because the ticking clock and again it's a literal ticking clock he has a certain he has until this point in time yeah. to get his parents back together and then simultaneously get the DeLorean working and be at that exact moment for the lightning yeah. strike. There is so much, and and the ticking clock's constantly going. Like he doesn't have time to start doing getting bets. His existence is on the line. Mm-hmm. So as long once he gets to that point, he's like, okay, I'm going to exist now. I'm going to try and go home. So I wasn't sitting there bogged by like, oh, why isn't he? Why is he trying to, you know, bet yeah, on the sports which, teams? Yeah. What, what's the best part about the second one, mm. though, is he's got way more time. Exactly. The after stakes he, are after he fixes intense. the problem yeah. that send, doesn't send his son to prison, he's not really on a, like, full press time. Like, yeah. Once he's achieved that goal, he's got a little bit of time before, you yeah. know, Doc finds him. And, but, um, but you know, bringing it back to that first one, that that's what's a genius about. It's like, it's such a... You say it, it's it's simple in the sense that you know exactly... Okay, all he has to do is get those two together. That is the goal. Hmm. Otherwise, there's no, like, extra worry about, like, changing things in the future. He ultimately ends up changing things for the good because at the end, you know, his dad does become a publisher and their family is a bit more luxurious and, and wealthy, which is interesting what that, I guess, says. Hmm. I don't know if it really says anything. I think it's more of a feel-good, like, oh, he's no. rewarded for his, you know, for his... Uh, his actions and, and for succeeding in his goal, I guess. Mm. I don't think there's any sort of weird nah. capitalism commentary there. <laughs> no. He gets I, the big car. I don't this know. Is, this is sort of like the best part, though, isn't it? Because mm. um, I don't think this film is trying to do that. It's 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 simple and easy to understand. He beats the bully, and so in the future, you know, Biff's not the bully. Biff yeah, exactly. is the, the squeamish sort of yes-man guy. Yeah, you uh, stand up to your bullies and look what happens. It's a nice yeah. little yeah, little message there for the yeah. kids. <laughs> I think what what makes what makes this film shine hmm. um, is things like the production design and the imagination that comes. We t- we touched on it a little bit with like Spielberg with ET, and I know that at least at the time, because Spielberg was sort of more in that child exploration decade, hmm. which we've talked about in his eighties was less. Heavy than than his nineties and and you know, <laughs> like Schindler's Schindler yeah. color purple, <laughs> Saving Private Ryan. So it's you know and 
Um, you know, like this film, I think yields imagination. That's what it spawns. It spawns creative thought, creative and critical thought about mm. what if I had the power to do this? Like, mm. and it's a real pure exploration of science fiction. That's quite what makes it the most entertaining. Yeah. Why? Well, I, I think the science fiction elements and the iconography. I mean, it's it's all excellent. Like the Delorean. Again, we talked about how he could have done the Ford Mustang. And made a lot of money in this. It's like, mm. no, it's very much committed to this DeLorean, which isn't a great vehicle. I mean, it's part of the reason they picked it is because it could barely get to 88 miles per hour. But it does have that sci fi look to it, and they're sort of blending the contemporary with the fantastical element and the flux capacitor, like the look of it. Mm-hmm. Sort of this weird, glowy thing is a little Frankenstein esque with the electric sort of finimajigs around the, around the laboratory. Yeah. But, the flaming trail, car trail. Oh my God, yeah. Exactly, and, and iconic. That's like. that's part of the coolness as well of it as well with yeah. blending that sci-fi, but I think that is such an important part of the film is the simplification of the sci-fi fantasy elements because there's a lot of I know a lot of people who just don't like sci-fi generally, mm. but this film sort of puts all the sci-fi elements in the back seat because it's sort of a means to an end is to get him in that scenario where now his task you know getting his parents back together. It's a much more relatable human thing of like dealing with infatuation and and people's feelings and there's no sci-fi trick that's going to get him to solve that problem. So I have a big question for you, Jake. Big question. This is a big question. So Christopher Lloyd hasn't aged. <laughs> he has not, and and I'm sure I mentioned this before. I met him a few years ago. Yeah. And yeah, he does not age. <laughs> Can it's confirm. Like he aged really fast and then just stopped. Um, well, to, to be fair, I think he has pretty crazy makeup in these films, because I know he's in um, um. Oh god, what's what's the name of the movie? How am I forgetting this? The um, oh my god, how am I forgetting this? It won a million Oscars. Um, they spun it off recently. The uh, wow, how am I forgetting? I'm even forgetting bloody Jack Nicholson's name. <laughs> the Jack Nicholson film. Where he's in the Nut House. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Ah. Jesus, Jake. Oh, my God. Um, Christopher Lloyd's in that. And I'm pretty sure he looks quite young in that as well. So I I, I feel like they've done quite a bit of aging on, on Christopher Lloyd um, to make him look like, you know, an older doc, per se. Yeah, I mean, at the time, so he's born in 1938, so he would have been, you know, in his, his 40s. Yeah, well, I think he probably looks more like the Doc in the past in the nineteen in nineteen fifty five does look quite noticeably younger than the Doc that Marty sees in, in mm. nineteen eighty five. So I think he probably looks more like that. And then again, with their they age, they cast you know Christopher Glovin and Lee Thompson, and they aged them up significantly for the present day scenes. Mm. But they cast young actors to play their younger selves. So, but this is what I'm the question I'm going to pitch to you. Yes, okay. Is we just had. A Ghostbusters sequel. Oh God! What are you? What are you doing? Will back. <laughs> will back to the future. Ah. Or should back to the future. No. Similar. No. 40, no. Forty years no. on. Never. Bust out the. Why door would you even ask me that, Zeke? <laughs> even if you could get your original cast members. No, don't touch this. Here's the thing. I will. I will say this. Okay. Telltale did their game series, which is essentially Back to the Future 4, maybe okay. 10 years ago. Very good. I loved it a lot. 
the story and it's you know it's it takes place after back to the future 3 and my it's like six months later and marty ends up going back to like the 1930s where the doc is like a, a university uh, student who's uh, studying to become a lawyer trying to impress his dad when really he wants to be a scientist so to get back to the present marty has to convince him to you know basically embrace his scientific self earlier in life mm-hmm. and able to do that and then that leads into a whole thing where he goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth it's great it's excellent but it's also an animated video game i in terms of like a remake or a soft reboot or a sequel or, you know even with the cast you know you bloody bring thomas f wilson back don't you dare don't do it why why on earth would you do that <laughs> You're like offended by the question. I, well, you know what? It's. I feel like this is probably the most famous film in which everyone just synonymously agrees don't ever touch this. Don't ever make a sequel. Don't ever make a remake. That's all I see anyone ever talk about Back to Future. And I remember apparently there were talks with, um, with Tom Holland to actually do Marty McFly, to like do a remake. And even he was like, no. Like, he probably missed out on $7 million. <laughs> but even he was like, no, you're crazy. Like, we can't touch this. Yeah. That's insane. I just Didn't, I feel- didn't stop Uncharted, though, did it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's different. It's like, who's protecting the sanctity of Uncharted? It's like, I mean, first off, you got Robert Smekers and Bob Gale. They've actually, they've saved themselves legally. Like, it is, as long as they're alive, it, you basically can't do anything with the IP. And I think it goes on to their kids who would hopefully then also put down the same foot of no, don't touch this IP. Don't touch it, yeah. So they've gone out of their way to protect this IP from any, frankly, bastardization. Because look what happened to Ghostbusters. I, I mean, I like Afterlife. I know you like Afterlife. I know it's a lot of people. I know some people don't like Afterlife, and a lot of people don't like the 2016 one. And, oh, I don't like the 2016 one. Yeah, it's. I just. I think it sort of soured the, the the legacy of it, and I don't think that's the end of the world. Like, just because episodes yeah. 7, 8, and 9 are out doesn't ruin episode 4. I don't think it would. No, you just pretend 7, 8, 9 didn't exist. Well, that's it. You, it it's not that hard it's, it's, <laughs> to do it's that. It's actually kind of the best part about things like Star Wars or... Like, you, you can't, like, you can ignore, like, 7, 8, 9's existence. You really can. And just as you can quite easily just watch Ghostbusters 1 and 2 if you don't like yep. Afterlife. I actually think Afterlife's quite a strong uh, spiritual s- sequel, but... Sure. Um, and I think people just, should just chill out on that, but... Um, <laughs> I don't really know what the problem with it is, apart sure. from, like, it's not made in the 1980s. But, it, you know, it's sort of like one of those things just as if they ever make another like you can pretend with Indiana Jones that the fourth one doesn't exist um well the fifth one they've I think they've wrapped it now the fifth one so um you know there's I agree though I think that's probably you're probably right it's probably best to uh leave this be let it be I just think it's we've talked about we've talked about like the importance of the 80s iconography, the sci-fi iconography that, that sort of mixed with the contemporary icon. I mean, the DeLorean itself is such a perfect example of that mixture. Mm-hmm. you got the performances, which I you got to, you know, you talk about the eccentric performance from Christopher Lloyd. You talk about, I think Christian Glover is is absolutely brilliant in this film. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think people talk enough about his performance as like young George McFly. And it's so specific and it's so nerdy, but it's, 
he's just like he is so his timing is impeccable and i don't think a performance like that get like damn hands off her. <laughs> i don't think you can do any of those performances i mean michael j fox is absolutely brilliant but he's flinning around and but people compare him to tom holland i'm sorry tom holland is not michael j fox tom holland's not a good actor <laughs> Look, I'm not going to go that far, but I will say with Tom Holland, I think he's sort of wedged into this particular hole where people look and it's like, oh, he's sort of like an overly talky, you know, teen. And mm-hmm. That's what Marty McFly is. I'm like, that's such a disservice to Marty McFly. I think that's he's a much more complicated, layered character. But in terms of Michael J. Fox carrying a film, he completely carries his film and those wacky eccentric 80s-esque performances that are like mm. over the top but are so they're done with such precision and accuracy and excellent timing every actor in this film knows what they're doing yeah they're all so aware of how they're hamming up i don't think it is possible to ever replicate that in any way shape or form i don't even know if they themselves could replicate it to that extent and I think that's the, that combination is what makes this film so special and so tied to 1985, mm. but also timeless. Because, I mean, those are performances you can't, you can't replicate. You can't... You can't replicate it. That's really all that matters. <laughs> Jake's put the hammer down. I put the hammer down. i got to say it. Mm. i got to ask... Slamming your all-black mug down. Exactly. Ex- yeah, I know. i got my, my New Zealand mug. It's really good. Can't wait to drink out of this tomorrow. It's going to be very good. Hmm. But i got to ask you... Cute. Between... Thank you. <laughs> between... Let's... let's. I mean, let's put them all. Let's let's get, like, the main sort of five there. You've got Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Kristen Glover, Thomas F. Wilson, respectively as Marty Doc... Um, is it Lorraine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lorraine, George, and, of course, Biff Tannen. <laughs> Who... Which is probably your favourite performance between those five? Actually, probably Biff. I mean, Biff, <laughs> Biff is, is brilliant in this. Biff is so funny. Oh. Um, I think it's just like the butthead. Like, <laughs> so good. Make like a tree <laughs> and get out of here. <laughs> Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn idiot. <laughs> it's also just so quotable. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when this baby hits eighty-eight miles, I actually gonna see one some of the serious shit. funniest things is. So I'm, I'm gonna talk about it next week when I've finished watching it. But I watched the first thirty minutes of Top Gun. Oh, in prep for. Um, I think Stephen watched Top Gun the other day. It's good. I was actually hmm. really surprised. The first thirty minutes, it's kind of like hokey, like eighties. Sure, yeah. I totally see why it won Oscars because from a stylistic point of view, it's very impressive and. Danger Zone's such a banger. Danger Zone. Um, but one of the funniest things in the first 20 minutes of it is um, Tom Cruise and um guy who plays Goose. I can't remember his name. But they're being grilled by like their, their commanding officer, their CEO. And I was like, at first, the way he was acting was very like... I was like, I know this actor, but I can't remember where he's... It's the principal oh, from Back to the Future. Yeah. Mr. Strickland. Mr. Strickland. And the way he's Played performing... Played by James Cholcan? 
and he's the same. He performs identical with Tom Cruise. <laughs> like, just the way he's new. Like, when he's, like, a, a man, an army officer. But the yeah. way he's, like, he's, like, you guys are, like, you know what happens to risky people? Like, they end up out of the force. And it was just such a, like, the slacker sort of, <laughs> yeah, like, yantra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slacker like, McFly, just like your just, father. It was, like, literally, you could tell, like, his Top Gun's, what, two or three years after. Um, oh, that's brilliant. After Back to the Future, they were just, like, just do your Strickland. Like... <laughs> That's what we want as your the CEO, but it was very funny. That's one of my favorite cuts. I always forget this joke is when, obviously, they're doing the Johnny Be Good, and he's going crazy on the on the electric guitar, and everyone's just sort of like, "What the hell did you just do?" And it just cuts to Strickland with his hands in his ears, and I just I lose it every. T- I always forget about that one yeah. cut, and he's still bold. <laughs> oh, I love that. Like, like he hasn't aged today. Like yeah, that's yeah. the joke. Like he's just he looks. Was he? Did he ever have hair? Like. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, very quotable yeah you have little moments like that but um the, the other guy, thing we... like one of the stooges with the 3d glasses <laughs> for some reason <laughs> is constantly looking oh, through the world that's brilliant yeah and i think they call that back in the 25th when they go to 2015 and, yeah and griff's stooges i think one of them's got like 3d glasses <laughs> that makes sense yeah the before i forget we have to talk about well there's both like the original score for this film and then the source music is just it's absolutely mm. brilliant yeah, I, the music's great we'll talk about um bloody uh how am I forgetting his name but he, he did the Avengers score Alan uh, Silvestri which you can actually hear a lot of his Avengers Endgame score in Back to the Future and vice versa they're actually quite similar but First of all, I think I read it. I think his score doesn't actually come in until we see the DeLorean. I mean, it's the first time we actually get the, the little tw- yeah, twinkle, yeah, which is oh, just absolutely brilliant. But then the excitement, and I guess we'll get into the highlight scene soon, but the excitement when you get to that final scene where they have to do the lap around the clock tower, which again, another example of just like brilliant storytelling of like that. Rewatching it, you mm. still get caught up in it. Like, oh my it's God. Fascinating it's fascinating how well paced that is with that what it is is i think it's the mix of like the clock hands and how prolifically moving they are like it's yeah. not like as simple there's as a lot a small of white red it. clock going yeah. like then then it's like a do like it yeah. really has that like we're really cutting this short and and you still get that little bit of anxiety when the cable falls off and because yeah, it just keeps going right it was watching in the theater i've seen this movie a million times and it's just so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. And then he has to swing down and obviously he pulls out, but then the, the bottom one undoes and like just all those little beats just to make it more it's, exciting. It's yeah. just little things like um, the like him tearing up the the envelope, being like, I don't oh, want to yeah. know about it and you're yeah. like and then we now then we, we then we get we get caught <laughs> into the the whole like oh Marty's gonna go back thirty minutes earlier. Like mm. and that'll be enough time to stop it himself. Um which is kinda crazy. Like, why wouldn't you just make it like an hour before? But <laughs> Well, I think I think it goes back more to like Doc the nineteen fifty five Doc actually refusing, like, I don't wanna know, I don't want to destroy the sanctity. It's like we've already done too much to risk this. Like he's such a risk averse person. But then you, in the future... He eats that out the window. Well, he does. He eats that. He's like, I thought, what the hell? Well, his arc <laughs> is all through that. Because by the end of the, the third film, he's 
he's uh he's got a steam powered time machine <laughs> with two kids and that's true yeah he just sort of yeets out the like we have to destroy the time machine yo jk is i got a train that flies now <laughs> I, got a, I got a time traveling train yeah and you can't stop doc you can't no. stop him no i like i like that that's at least consistent though that he always like He's always like thinking ahead, like no, 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 we got to protect the sanctity of time, and he always, it always the same thing. Be like, ah, oh, what the hell? Yeah, there's like a carelessness. Like, Your future is not real. I mean, that's the third film. He really but- can only go to certain times though in the train when you think about it, because as soon as he goes to a time that doesn't have railroad tracks, but it's flying by the end. The last oh, train yeah, flies, yeah. So he's all right. <laughs> There's no train tracks. He's just stuck. Yeah, Thomas the Tank Engine music. Dun, 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 oh, God, yeah. Um, all right. Well, Jake, what is your highlight scene for Back to the Future Part 1? Yeah. Um, well, it's got to be that scene, surely. It's just... That final the, pace the, scene. Well, the clock, yeah. the clock tower and just I, I them like screaming it. over the lightning like, I have to tell you about the future. And Like I said, like every little beat, every little plot beat, it's just perfectly. It's a. It's an equal level of excitement and anxiety. Again, Alan Silvestri's score. It's just brilliant. Mm. It is like perfect filmmaking, and the fact the fact that it gets you excited every single time. Like, <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, what? What else can you say? It's one of the greatest scenes of all time, if anything. I would probably say for me, it's going to be either a. Nice. I like the. I actually like the intro to the fifty five. So the Mister Sandman sequence. Aye. Oh, um, Mister like, Sandman. Um, but dream. I, I think bum, the chase bum, scene bum. around the town. Oh yes. That uh, ends His with makeshift skateboard. Yeah, I think that's probably my favorite, and how they call back to it in the, the sequel film. Mm. But yeah, no, I probably say that's my favorite scene because we really get to grasp the whole town at that point. It becomes I love the use of environment in the mm. films, like they give the environment life, and then they don't ever just forget about that. They really make the town an environment, um, an interactive environment. Yeah. Like how well, it, it's more of a character. Because you're seeing it in such a different states and different time periods. And, well, there's a great emphasis on how much Marty can affect the future with mm. just simple, small conversations. Like talking to, um, oh, forgetting his name, what the new mayor. The mayor. Of, the yeah. Mayor. Where it's just like two. Goldie Wilson. Goldie um, Wilson, that's um, it. <laughs> where he's just like, it's just one word, like one, um, like interaction that mm. leads to him being like yeah i should run for office like i should do that yeah yeah or like every little react like every little one like what would be really yeah be and i love that i love how they make it so every small interaction is meant to be poignant because he is having a cascading effect on time yeah but but to that point earlier where it's like in terms of the stakes we just need to focus on the stakes of his parents not meeting because every other thing that he changes by you know casual conversation, those are fun changes. Yeah. They're like kind of nifty, like oh that's cute, and then this person does this, and this happens to this character. But but yeah, it's very well thought out. I wonder what would happen in the future when he talks to his mum and dad about the boy named Calvin Klein. <laughs> like, <laughs> Um, you know, I've seen this going around lately. People are saying it's a plot, a plot hole that the parents wouldn't recognize their son as the kid from their high school. I think that's ridiculous. It's like it's what thirty years. 
they knew Calvin Klein for six days. And, like, they probably think it's a coincidence. Like, if you have a kid, Zeke, are you going to immediately think that that was, like, a person you were friends with? Way, 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 30 way, years 30 before. years earlier. Like, you and I'm sorry, but in, people always forget that it's that subjective. So for Marty, it has been a matter of minutes between 30 years. For yeah. these people, it's been 30 it's been years. 30 years. Like, if you disappear tomorrow... And it's also, tomorrow, like, their third if, kid. <laughs> if you disappeared tomorrow, Jake... Yeah. Oh, jeez. And then reemerged 30 years from now looking exactly like you, I wouldn't think it was you. I would think it's right. someone who looks like you. Like, But even then, we've known each other for many years now. Yeah. As opposed to a kid they've known for six days. Yeah. So, yeah, I I don't think that's a plot hole at all. I think that's no. very nitpicky. I think it's very nitpicky, too. Because it's the like, parents don't know about the I mean, sci-fi I element. I can't remember people that I went to high school with, what they look like now. I'm, <laughs> like, thinking, I'm thinking of, yeah, people I went to high school, they were only new for a few weeks, or they were only yeah. there for a month. And it's like... Their, their image in my head is so blurry that I remember so we had true. an American so exchange kid come in and it's like virtually exchange, any, any American I meet yeah, is going to look like that any kid. Any exchange student. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's a prime example. It's the equivalent to an exchange student coming yeah. into your life. Like, you're not going to remember that stuff. No. And yeah, like she's into him for those six days. But to be honest, she, she as her about she's him. kind of into a lot of boys at the time. I want to say that the moment, because she's so into him, you get to the point where, like, is she, what what could he possibly do to get her off, like, off his ass, essentially? And they do the two perfect things. is like, obviously, kiss. And then she has that epiphany, like, it's like kissing my brother. And then the second one, where she's like, that was really interesting music, Marty. Of just, like, even after that happens, he's still continually doing things to, like, like throw her off. So yeah. she's just not attracted to him anymore. Yeah, I just that was great little ways to to do that because they did such a good job at of her chasing him and falling in love with him and but um yeah. no, it's just it's a perfect script it's a perfect no, screenplay. Well, Back to the Future is currently out on streaming platforms. It is on Stan, Amazon Prime included with and binge all free. In fact, the whole trilogy, the works. There you go. Well, of speaking you of those streaming platforms and cinemas, Jake. Hmm. What is new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? It's actually a decent week this week, Zeke. Gotta say. Coming to Netflix this week is Along for the Ride, which is two young insomniacs meet in the summer before college and embark on nightly quests to fully embrace the fun, carefree lives that they could be living. Hmm, sounds sweet. Sounds like a Nickelodeon type, yes. <laughs> type jam. Uh, coming to Disney Plus this week is The King of Comedy, which, hell yeah. Banger. That's sick. It's, it was so hard to find that film when we we did it years ago. Yeah. Um, and once upon a time in America, so that's exciting. Coming to Apple TV Plus, you've got Doco series, They Call Me Magic, and The Long Game, Bigger Than Basketball, which are both respectively about Magic Johnson and Mika Maker. So there you go, a little bit of a basketball mm-hmm. thing going on there. Uh, coming to Binge this week is the beginning, or the first two episodes are premiering for the second season of The Flight Attendant. So that's exciting if you're into that show. And speaking of which, you have two new episodes coming for the sixth and final season of Better Call Saul on Stan. I am so freaking excited, Zeke. That's fantastic. My body is ready. So that's coming to Stan. I'm glad your body is ready. Good. I'm glad. I'm very glad. And coming to cinemas this week, we have The Northman, which is Robert Eggers' third feature film. Sees Alexandra Skarsgård as a Viking who goes on a bloodthirsty quest to avenge his father. It also stars Anya Taylor-Joy, Willem Dafoe, Nicole Kidman, even Hawken Bork. Are you excited for this thing? Looks sick. It looks insane. 
Yeah. <laughs> it looks absolutely bonkers. Yeah, I really should have put it up for a certain thing we're going to be talking about soon. Yeah, we could have. That's true. I mean, it comes out on Thursday, I think. It'll just be fun to watch. Yeah, yeah, we'll catch it. Yeah. No, I'm very excited. It's obviously Robert Eggers' first, like, go around to, like, a big, like, $90 million budget. Looks like he's used it pretty well. Yeah. It's got very good ratings. Yeah, no, it's looking looking great. It's funny because I saw some early previews being like, oh, you need to have, like, a, a master's degree in Viking mythology and history to, like, understand this film. And then the next review I read was... This is shockingly like, um, what's the word? Like, easy to just jump into. To be into. honest, if you've Accessible. watched, if you watched and liked the Viking show, I reckon you're gonna do perfectly fine. Yeah, with the Northmen. Yeah. And to be honest, it's you could argue the same thing with Eggers's like lighthouse with the whole ties to Greek yeah. mythology and such. But you, you can watch it. it as is. You exactly. don't need that. Yeah, it's just cool to add that to your reading. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, the Northmen's probably gonna be more literal. Yeah. So, um. I don't know not if it's talking about my cooking <laughs> <laughs> not fond of me lobster <laughs> Elizabeth Portrait in Parts is a documentary about the life and times of Queen Elizabeth II wow I'm sure we've never had that before yeah. <laughs> I got really aggressive then yeah that was and, really that was rough bro I know I know bloody hell it's pressing me off no not really and finally Luna is previewing after Yang on the 21st of April that's also Thursday so you've got to pick and choose your battles. you got to pick and choose which film you want to see. This one sees Colin Farrell, who attempts to repair his daughter's broken android and instead discovers the life that has been passing in front of him as he reconnects with his wife and daughter. This was a big hit at Cannes last year. And I want to say Colin Farrell's character's name is Jake. There you go. So that's exciting. But I'm, I'm keen for this. Probably we'll skip the preview. I'm sure we'll come out in another couple of weeks. I'll catch it then. But, but I've heard good things about it. Very good things about it. I thought it was at Sundance. Was it cars? I don't know. Who cares? Um, it's coming. <laughs> but that's it, Zeke. That's everything that's coming to cinemas and streaming this week. No dramas. Well, we're going to be talking about next week's uh, film, but oh. it's that time of year, Jake. It's that time of year. It's our Countdown Through the Decades sort of retrospective series. Uh, this is our third. Our third go-around. That's crazy. Um... And obviously, so if you're familiar with our show and you're familiar with this particular part of the year, we normally do it at quieter times in the year, mm. get 10 weeks, we go through every decade, we get you guys on Instagram, mine at ZekeMH, mine's at Jake, Jake the Clicker, Jake the Clicker, um, to vote on what film you want to watch us for each respective decade. We had the 2020s starting off, Jake. What? We did. Was it a good, uh, good fight? What were the two films? So the two films was Everything Everywhere All at Once and The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. So, I was I was mm. intrigued to see which way. They both seem quite larger than life, kind of funny Yeah, films. like very sort of purposely um, self-aware, bloated films in a lot of ways. And I, I will say, I did watch one other film this week. I have now seen everywhere, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Hmm. And I re- was reluctant to talk about it this week because, surprise, surprise... It won the vote. Yep. So that's what we'll be watching next week on the show. So there we go. I'll. Oh, we kind of ruined our segue, didn't we? <laughs> you want to ask me again? <laughs> <laughs> but Jake, what won the poll and what are we watching? Well, I'm glad you asked, Zeke. Next week we're watching Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. This is Wang. This is Wang. 
Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now, you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. When an interdimensional rupture unravels reality, an unlikely hero must channel her newfound powers to fight bizarre and bewildering dangers for the multiverse. So this did beat out Unbearable Way to Massive Talent. 37 to 15 votes. So it was a bit, a bit of a landslide, but yeah. I also think everything every, everything everywhere all at once, man. I've got to stick to the shorthand of just everything everywhere. I mean, we talked about it. It's the, it's the highest rated film of all time on Letterboxd. Still is. It is hot 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 right now yeah so we'll be catching i will be catching it oh i'm watching i'm definitely watching again and you're watching it again so until then thank you for joining us for the cinema sideshow podcast i was zeke i'm jake and we'll catch you next week with everywhere is everything everywhere all at once that's it i could have said present tense i'm jake i should have said i was jake (laughs) well you are jake i am jake no one can take that away from me